Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Over the summer, my son was riding his bike and uh, noticed that it was kind of dangerous. The handlebars didn't always stay with the front wheel as he was trying to turn. The brakes kind of worked. Shoes were a decent replacement for brakes. But when his birthday came this last October, we decided it's time to get him a new bike. And so I and his brothers and sisters went and uh, chose out a brand new bike. And it was extremely cool. It is extremely cool bike. And we brought it home, and so you can imagine how overjoyed he was when on his birthday he woke up and he found that he had a brand new bike. Uh, we went to a hidden uh, bike track over by McAuliffe Park, and we spent the day there going over jumps and just watching him enjoy his new bike and uh, us enjoying his enjoyment of the new bike. Last week, our family piled into my pickup truck uh, we do all fit in there, believe it or not. And we were backing out of the driveway, and all of a sudden we heard a crunch. Someone said, pull forward. Don't ever pull forward when you hear a crunch. But I pulled forward, and you just heard scraping. And so I got out, and I went behind the truck, and yes, my son's brand new bike had been crushed. Well, the, the, the handlebar had been crushed and the whole brake system had been crushed. And it was amazing how quickly our joy uh, had turned into sorrow. This is kind of the cycle of everything in our world. Anything that brings us joy eventually leads to sorrow. If you find joy in your beauty or your health or your abilities, eventually comes the sorrow of a decaying body. If you find joy in your career and in achievements, eventually there is sorrow when you don't live up to your own standards. When we find joy in our family and friends and lovers, eventually sorrow disappoints us as we are rejected, as we are disappointed, as we even say goodbye to the ones that we love. You know, it is good to have joy in the blessings God has given to us in this world. But in this world, ever since the fall of mankind, joy has always turned into sorrow. And yet today, Jesus promises to reverse the curse. He promises to reverse the cycle, and instead of joy turning into sorrow, he promises that if we follow him, if we believe in him, if we trust in him, that our sorrow will turn into joy. If you would, please open up to John chapter 16. 
Uh, it's page 902 in the Red Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you. And it's page 902 in that Bible. Again, we are walking through Jesus' farewell discourse where he's saying his final goodbyes to his apostles before his death, and he's giving final instructions. And we're getting close to the end of that farewell address, which will then change into a prayer from Jesus. John chapter 16, today we'll be looking at verses 16 through 24. Jesus says to his apostles, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourself? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Lord, you say, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. And so God, pray this morning that you would fill our joy with the truths of your love with the truths of your accomplishments, with the truths of the gospel this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last weekend, I said to my wife, I'm not sure how I'm going to make it through this week. (laughs) Can you relate, Lamont? I already had a a jam-packed schedule, um, and I just, too many things to do, too little time. Didn't know how I was going to get through the week. I'm sure you've been there. I'm not alone in that. And as the week progressed, uh, the the tough week just got even more difficult. On Tuesday, we had a funeral for my friend Josh, which is certainly emotionally taxing as you grieve the loss of a loved one. On Tuesday, on Wednesday, I had to, no, I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up. Um, I had to walk through that. Um, the other thing that happened this week is that I had a friend who was uh, diagnosed with cancer, which is heartbreaking. 
Um, also, multiple times this week, I had to uh, sit down with my children who are going through very, very hard things in life and grieve with them and talk with them and pray with them and just be with them and love them. Um, it's been a hard week. And what maybe makes this week harder than all of these things is that today Jesus gives me this assignment to preach on a passage about how he turns sorrow into joy. God's timing is perfect, right? Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're here today and sorrow has struck you this week in various forms. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed with life and and the study of joy and the pursuit of joy seems, seems kind of inappropriate. Joy seems far from you and you just seem overwhelmed. Maybe you're here today because you are searching for joy and you have looked all the places that the world says go here to look for joy and yet you have come up empty. Maybe you're here today and you remember a time where your heart was filled with great joy but it has become filled with bitterness and anger and even numbness because of the things that have happened around you and you have wondered Will my heart ever be full of joy again? In this passage, Jesus helps us understand how he and he alone can reverse the curse. The curse of joy always turning into sorrow. He reverses that curse so that our sorrow will turn into joy. And he explains this to us by giving three promises to his apostles, but also to his disciples today. Jesus promises severe sorrow. Jesus promises jubilant joy. And Jesus promises prayer power. Let's look at the first. Jesus promises severe sorrow. In John's gospel, John uses the word sorrow four times. All four of those times that John uses the word sorrow is in this chapter, in chapter 16. Last week in verses 5 through 6, you can look there with me. You may remember this. But Jesus says, now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus acknowledges the sorrow, the grieving that the apostles are going through because he has told them repeatedly that he is going away. Now, Jesus doesn't say that sorrow is going to magically evaporate. He actually says that their sorrow is going to get worse because, the, the, because in the future, he's not only going to be talking about his departure in theory, but it will become a gruesome, nightmarish reality. He continues in verse 16. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and a little while you will see me. Verse 17, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father, they added that part that wasn't a part of what he said in the context. Verse 18, so they were saying, what does he mean a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. It seems kind of funny to read that, doesn't it? It's kind of like the who's on first thing, if you remember that. I mean, it's like, what's on second? In these verses, in veiled language, Jesus is foretelling the glorious gospel 
of God's plan. The apostles don't quite understand what is coming, what Jesus is talking about, but we know the rest of the story. We have read the rest of John's gospel, and we know that in a little while, in just a few hours, Jesus is going away, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to be buried in the grave, and that they will see him no longer. And yet in another little while, in three more days, they will see Jesus again because he will raise from the dead. Jesus foretells God's gospel plan to the apostles, not so that they can escape sorrow, but so they can begin to learn how to hope in the midst of sorrow. Jesus says in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Why will the apostles weep and lament? Why will they be sorrowful? Well, on one hand, like anyone who loses a loved one, there is grief associated with that. They were close to Jesus. They were intimate with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus for three years. Jesus was a huge part of their life, and all of a sudden, that part of their life was going to be missing. And so they grieved because Jesus was was someone that they loved, someone that they cared for, just like anyone would grieve over someone that they love and care for that has died. But their, their grief, their sorrow is compounded because of who Jesus is and because of how the world responded to it. James Montgomery Boyce points this out, but, but one of the reasons why their sorrow was compounded was, was, again, the world's attitude towards the death of Jesus. If you look in verse 20 again, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The sorrow of the disciples intensified in severity because instead of the world grieving with them and lamenting with them, the world was rejoicing at the very thing that they were grieving in. Their Jewish leaders, their families, their friends were delighted in the thing that had brought them the most pain. They cherished Jesus, but the world did not. And so the apostles had to watch the world have its way with Jesus as they falsely accused Jesus, as they beat and tortured Jesus, and as they celebrated the gruesome death of Jesus. And so the apostles' sorrow was intensified because the world rejoiced at what caused them the most pain. But it was also intensified because Jesus was not merely a friend. He was not merely a teacher. Jesus was their hope. I don't know if you remember this, but after Christ's resurrection, he he joined some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's there incognito, and he, he hears them talking, and he can see that they're disturbed, that they're sad. And so he comes along, and he says, what are you talking about? And one of them said that they're talking concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then listen closely. They say this. They say, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The disciples were 
deep in sorrow because their loved one had died, because the world was rejoicing against them. But because when Jesus died, so did their hope of redemption. You know, redemption is a funny term that we use. Um, we use it to talk about, you know, a coupon. You go to a store, you give them a coupon, you get a free, free flashlight or something. For, for, for Jesus in his day, redemption was, was far deeper than that. Redemption was, was, was a price that you paid to rescue someone out of bondage, out of slavery. This was their hope that Jesus would redeem them out of the bondage of the world. And their hope had died, and so they were grieving over it. Again, as I mentioned, this, this past Tuesday, we had the funeral for Josh, and Josh was only 31 years old. He died unexpectedly to us, not to the Lord, but he had died unexpectedly of a heart condition. And as family members stood and spoke of how much they appreciated Josh and of what a blessing Josh was, it was, it was, it was wonderful to hear Hear the testimonies of so many people who said, yeah, just, would just, Josh would call me and just share with me a Bible verse to encourage me. And, or others would share about how Josh, Josh shared Jesus with them to tell them about life, the love of Christ. But as, as these testimonies came out, as they celebrated the gift Josh was, so came sorrow and heartache and tears because Josh was now gone Friends, we live in a fallen world, a world full of death, destruction, and daily disappointments. Did you know that your Savior does not minimize your sorrow? Did you know that you don't have a Savior who sweeps it under the rug and says, don't worry, be happy, just ignore it? Did you know that you have a Savior who grieves with you in your sorrow? Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Three separate occasions in the Gospels we, we read about, sorry, they're not all in the Gospels, but on three separate occasions in the New Testament we read about how Jesus actually wept in sorrow. One of them you probably remember, it's when his friend Lazarus died, Jesus stopped and Jesus wept, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. At another time, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew the judgment that was coming upon it, even though Jesus knew that there would be a new Jerusalem that would come down from heaven one day. And in Hebrews, we read that Jesus even wept over his impending death, knowing about the wrath of God that was going to be poured out upon him. And he wept even though he knew that his own resurrection was coming. You know, we have a great hope in the future, but in many ways, Christians should be people of greater sorrow than the rest of the world because we know how the world should be, and we know how far we are from that. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's why Paul in Romans 12 says, weep with those who weep. Christians, this is such good news that we have a Savior that does, does not dismiss our sorrow, but steps into our sorrow, into our pain, and grieves with us. So we are called to grieve. We are called to sorrow. And it is God honoring to do so in response to a fallen world. 
But with that said, our great grieving should not be without hope. And our severe sorrow should not be without joy. Verse 20, jubilant joy. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. That's the promise. But the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. And then here's the second promise. But your sorrow will turn into joy. Amen. This is indeed what happened for the apostles. Um, On the third day, some women, two Marys, went to the tomb to go and, 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 and visit the body of Jesus. And when they get there, an angel appears to them and says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Go and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And then it says, So they departed. These women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Their sorrow had been turned into joy because of the resurrection, but not only because of the resurrection, but now because of the crucifixion. You see, the resurrection allowed these women, the disciples of Jesus, to now rejoice in the crucifixion. Before the resurrection, the crucifixion was simply an unjust circumstance. But now the crucifixion was the means of redemption that they had been hoping for. As I mentioned earlier, people were redeemed who were, out of, who were in slavery. People would, people would get in slavery. What would happen is they would get in debt to someone, right? They would owe them lots of money, and they would have no way to repay that debt. And so the way that they would have to repay the debt is that they would have to go into their servitude. They'd have to become their slave until they could pay off that debt. But the scriptures in the Old Testament make a provision that a redeemer can come along and can pay the price of their debt and purchase them out of slavery, out of bondage, into freedom. It's a ransom price. And so when they talk about hoping that Jesus would, would be the redeemer of Israel, that he would redeem Israel, they're hoping that Christ would come and purchase them out of slavery, out of darkness, into light, into freedom. And now Christ has done that. To give a a, a lesser modern day example, this past Christmas, an NFL player uh, made headlines because he walked into a Walmart and he went up to the counter and he wrote a check out for hundreds of thousands of dollars and paid the debt for everyone who had items on layaway. Could you imagine if you received that news, if you were one of the customers and you found out, you know, you had purchased this thing for Christmas for, for a loved one or for yourself maybe, and you didn't have the money to pay for it, so you had to put it on layaway, and someone comes along and they redeem that for you, they purchase it so that you are no longer in debt, you would be ecstatic, you would be overjoyed. And yet that is such a faint shadow of the purchase that Christ has made. At the cross, Jesus not only paid our ransom, Jesus was our ransom. We were enslaved to sin, to rebellion against God. The debt was our very life, for the wages of sin is death. And yet Jesus went to the cross and paid the debt in full so that we could be set free from bondage and brought back into a right relationship with God. This is the great 
reason, the great deep-seated reason for everlasting joy, even in the midst of sorrow. That at the cross and through the resurrection, we have been redeemed. Redeemed from Satan onto God. Redeemed out of death onto life. Redeemed from bondage onto freedom. Now Jesus tells us several things about this joy that he gives to us. I want to look at, I have four things. I'll go quickly, I promise. Four things that Jesus shows us about this joy. Verse 22 again, Jesus says, Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. First off, This joy Jesus promises is given to all the followers of Christ. He does not say some of you will be joyful, some of you won't be joyful. Jesus is saying, I am giving this joy to you. It will be yours without question. The second thing we see is that Jesus says that he will give this joy into our heart. That is into the center of our personhood, into the depth of our spiritual life. It will not be a superficial joy that is on the surface of our life, but it will go down into the innermost parts of who we are. Third, Jesus says that this joy is irrevocable. Do you notice that Jesus says, no one will take this joy from you. This means that you can't take it from yourself, that Satan can't take it from you, that the world can't take it from you, that circumstances can't take it from you, no hardship, no persecution, not even abundance can take this joy from you. This joy is like a cork in water. You can push it under the water for a little bit, but it's going to pop back up, right? The hardships of this world can be, can be waves of sorrow over us. And yet, like a cork, the joy is there, and it will pop back up. This is the joy that Jesus promises, joy to all his followers, joy in the depths of our heart, joy that is irrevocable. And finally, we see Jesus says, this joy is a joy that is greater that is greater than your sorrows. Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus gives this illustration. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You know, I've had the privilege of of being there when all four of my children were born. Personally, I didn't find it all that painful. Um, I had a stand for a long time. That was kind of hard, but it didn't seem all that difficult. For my wife, it was a very different experience. From what I understand, it was extremely painful. Something about trying to push a watermelon out or something like that. If childbirth is that bad today, can you imagine what it was like in Jesus' day? No pillows. No beds, no ice chips to chew on, no epidural. If, you, if you've had a child or know someone who has, you know that the pain and suffering doesn't stop when the child is born. Uh, there's actually recovery that happens. There's a reason why you stay in the hospital for a couple of days. Notice here in verse 21 that it doesn't say that when the woman delivers the baby, her anguish goes away. Rather, it says, when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. The anguish is still there, but she doesn't remember it. Why? For joy that a human being has been born into the world. 
Jesus does not say that when we come to faith in him, that we believe in him, that when we trust in him, all the sorrow and pain and anguish of the world will go away. But rather what Jesus is saying is that in the midst of sorrow and anguish of a fallen world, that we have been giving an overriding joy, a deeper joy, a buoyant joy that always comes to a service. We have been given a joy that is greater than our greatest sorrow. Maybe you remember the song as a child, I've got joy that is down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart. Joy that is down in my heart, deep, deep, yes, deeper than your sorrow. Down in my heart, Jesus gave it to me, and no one can destroy. I've got joy that is down in my heart, deep, deep down in my heart. This is a theologically wonderful song to sing to ourselves in the midst of sorrow. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That means dead. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. It does not say do not grieve, but do not grieve as one who has no hope. I think, again, it was such a beautiful picture of this at the funeral this past Tuesday as the family came and as they were grieving over the loss of Josh, they were crying, they were weeping, but they were not grieving as ones who have no hope because they knew where Josh was. They knew that Josh trusted in Christ for his salvation. They knew that, that Josh was really in a better place. Pastor Jim at, at New Hope Church always used to say, you know, if, if I could go, we'll say Josh, if I could go to Josh and offer him $10 million to come back to earth, he would laugh and decline. Because when we get to heaven, all of our sorrow will turn to joy. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more suffering. And there will no, be no more pain. There will only be joy forevermore. As I mentioned in the beginning, it is good to have joy in the blessings of God, but, but let me ask, where do you tie your ultimate joy to? Again, if you tie your ultimate joy to your job, what happens when you lose your job or when you underperform or when, when the boss is a jerk? Do you tie your ultimate joy to, to your family, to your children? What happens when they misbehave or when they betray you or if one of them passes on? Do you tie your ultimate joy to just a little better grades, a little better pay, a few more friends? All of those will fail you. But if you tie your joy to the unchanging variable of Jesus Christ, you will have a joy that is irrevocable, that is deeper than your sorrow, and that is greater than anything this world can throw at you. Tether your joy to the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. For jubilant joy, tether your ultimate joy to Christ. So the secret to jubilant joy is not the absence of suffering, but the victory and presence and stability of Christ in the midst of suffering. Finally, not only do we see Christ is giving us a love that is irrevocable and depth of our heart, 
But we also see that, that Christ wants our joy to be full, to be overflowing, and this happens through prayer. Verse 23 says, In that day you will ask me of nothing. This could be talking about Christ's resurrection, that when he raises from the dead, uh, all of these, these riddles that he's sharing with them will be clear. They'll understand the gospel. And so during his resurrection, uh, they won't ask him any questions. In my opinion, I think it's talking more about after his ascension, after he has departed into heaven, Jesus will no longer be bodily present. And so they won't have the opportunity to ask Jesus questions. Either way, Jesus continues and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy, there's the word again, that your joy may be full. Why, why do we pray in Jesus' name? Notice Jesus says here, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. They haven't asked anything in Jesus' name because, I mean, first off, people in the Old Testament didn't know the Savior's name. They didn't know to pray in Jesus' name. But more importantly, they weren't praying in Jesus' name because Jesus had not yet been established as the mediator between God and man. Jesus says, going forward, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. The reason why we come to God and we pray in Jesus' name is because if we come in our own name, we would be pulverized by the holiness of God. But when we come in Jesus' name, we are coming in his righteousness, in his character, in his sonship, and we are welcomed by the Father. And so when we end a prayer in Jesus' name, it's not just a throwaway phrase. It's a reminder of the gospel that we can come before a holy God in Christ and because of Christ alone. So we pray in Jesus' name as he instructs us to here. And even if we don't say it with our words, at least in our hearts, we're praying in Jesus' name. The other thing in this passage you see here is that Jesus says, whatever, whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. Jesus has made this promise on several occasions throughout his farewell discourse and, and Jesus says here that, that if you pray, the Father will give you, give you joy to the full. We already have joy, but he says, if you want to experience the fullness of that joy, come to me and pray to me. I mean, we've talked about this several times. You know, there's a temptation towards Lamborghini theology, right? If I come and I pray for a Lamborghini in Jesus' name, God is obligated to give me a Lamborghini. It didn't work for the apostles, and judging by the parking lot, it hasn't worked for any of us. And so, so what, does, what does Jesus mean when he says, whatever, whatever you ask, the Father will give it to you. Well, context is so extremely important. And as we look through the passage, uh, through, through, sorry, through the farewell discourse, what we see when Jesus says, whatever, on several different occasions, this is what he's talking about. John 14, 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In this context, he's saying, obey my commands. Ask the Father to give you strength to obey, and he will give it to you. John 15, 7, he says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In this context, Jesus is talking about abiding in Christ, communing with Christ, enjoying Christ. He says, pray for this and you will receive it. 
John 15, 6, he continues, said, pray whatever you want. My father will give it to you. And he's talking in the context of bearing fruit. And then here's the culmination of all of these things that Jesus is saying to Jesus, that Jesus is saying to his apostles here in this passage. He's saying, ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you that your joy may be full. He's saying, if you want the fullness of joy in God, pray that the Lord would give you strength to be obedient. That the Lord would give you wisdom to know his ways. That the Lord would breed intimacy between you and him. Go to the Lord in prayer if you want to be full of the joy that Christ has for you. Last year, a guy named Bob came to our church. You may remember he was doing a, 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 a praying life seminar. He's part of a ministry called See Jesus. And, and he came up here and he did a, he did a class for us uh, here in our church and Pastor Dan Breed was there, Pastor Chad Bowden was there, Pastor Jonathan was there, and, uh, and to be honest with you, I don't remember anything this guy said. Um, I remember he gave us like these index cards to do prayer cards, but, but one thing that will always stick with me was the joy that this man was filled with. He would laugh at his own jokes. None of us would be laughing. He would be laughing at his own jokes. He was so happy all the time, and we looked at each other and we're like, this is weird that this guy is this happy, especially if you knew his story. It's weird that he's this happy. But I think, honestly, all of us were also a little bit jealous. If you want to experience the fullness of the joy God has for you, make use of the power of prayer that God has given to you in Christ. My time's up, so let me end with this. In the third century, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, wrote to his friend Donatus, and he said this. He said, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. What is the secret? They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They're despised and persecuted. But they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians. And I am one of them. Friends, if there's one thing that you can remember from today's sermon, it's this. The joy that your heart longs for, the joy that, that God longs for your heart, is not achieved by pursuing joy. It's achieved by pursuing God. Pursue God through prayer, through contemplation of his love for you, through obedience, and your sorrow will turn into joy. Let's pray. Lord God, I confess that so often my mind and my heart gets consumed with the sorrow of this world that I forget about the joy that you've been that you have placed deep within my heart, Lord, deeper than any of the sorrows, deeper than any of the pain, a joy that will last far longer than my sorrow, far longer than my pain, a joy that will last for all eternity. Lord God, I pray that you would make us a people of prayer that would come to you, that would seek you, that would delight in you, that would know the joy of our salvation with greater and greater measure, so that when the sorrows hit, when the pain hits, we will be reminded of the joy of Christ within us. 
knowing that his love is steady, that it is stable, and that it will last forever and ever. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of the cross where joy and sorrow mingled, where the greatest tragedy in human history happened along with the greatest victory At the cross, we are reminded, at the table, we are reminded that sorrow and joy overlap. But it also points us to the day where sorrow will be removed and all we will have is joy as we feast with you in our heavenly home. May we look forward to that day with great joy. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. After blessing.